And that's what this whole month has been about. We've rooted this entire Only God series in this biblical concept that, like the Bible says, that we love because he first loved us. Which is to say that if we're going to be the people of love that Jesus has called us to be, people who love God with all that we are and all that we have, people who are loving ourselves and people who are loving each other and loving our community and loving our society, the, the Niagara region, people who are loving our world and even creation itself. We're to be the people whose lives are radiating love, which is what Jesus has called us to do and to be. Then that is, we're going to become that to the degree that we have a prior experience of being loved by God. We will love to the degree that we receive the love with which he's first loved us. And so for this whole series, we've been looking at the things, the ways that our experience of God's love has been interrupted. That sometimes we fail to experience God's love because of shame issues in our lives. That we, because when we look in the mirror... What we see is something ugly and unlovable and we assume that other people and God look at us the same way that we see ourselves. And Jeff Martins confronted this a month ago and said, no, when God looks at you, he sees his child. He sees himself reflected in you and he adores you. He, he sees in you a work of art, a masterpiece that he's making into something beautiful and he's so proud of. He sees in you a, a prized possession that he literally gave everything he had in order to, to have just to himself. Um, I think sometimes we fail to experience or to sense God's love for us because of guilt issues in our lives. Because we're just so aware of how messed up we are and how much we've messed up everything else and how messed up our life is and we just assume that God is fed up with how messed up we are. And we talked about the book of Hosea and about how God looks at us with the eyes of a groom looking at his bride when the church doors open and he's coming down the aisle and she's coming down the aisle even though we as God's bride have been unfaithful. We've cheated on God, we've lacked commitment. We've had our eyes diverted by other stuff. We've cared about other stuff more than God. We've passionately pursued stuff more passionately than we pursue God. And the whole time, no matter who we are, what we've done or how far we've strayed or how many times God has had to call us back, he continues to love us. He loves us enough to let us go. And then he loves us enough to win us back. And then after Easter, which is all about love, Jeff talked about how sometimes we fail to sense or appreciate God's love for us because we just don't understand how much God has invested in us. How God has literally poured himself into us to make of us the people that we were created to be in our character and then to invite us into doing what we've been created to do in working alongside of him in order to be a part of his kingdom that is coming. And now as we turn to in this last week of this Only God series, I believe that sometimes we fail to experience God's love because of the pain that we find ourselves in in our lives or because of the pain that the people that we love and are connected to find themselves in. 
that it's our experience of pain that interrupts our ability to experience God's love. And there's no question that we live our lives connected to pain. Um, Our creation is a creation that groans in pain every uh, avalanche and every mudslide and every earthquake and every cancer cell and every heart attack and every chemical imbalance reminds us that our creation is a creation that is groaning in pain. We live in a world of pain. I talked to a friend uh, just last week who lives in the Ukraine who told me months ago that the minute the Sochi Olympics were over, Putin was going to invade Ukraine and now lives with some fear about for the future of his country. He just, he's living in pain for his people. Every news story about slavery or sex trafficking or stupid poverty or every time the news fails to cover those things, every time the news covers the chaos of war, we're just reminded that our world is a world that's in pain. We experience communal pain. And in the Niagara region, uh, one only has to remember back to those days when Kristen French disappeared to feel all over again the fear and the pain of what we all lived through together. I was in a conversation last week with somebody who was remembering a, the splitting of a church that they were involved in years ago and just broke down and wept over the pain that they lived through communally with the people around them. We live in relational pain with our parents or pain with our kids or pain with our spouses, pain with our siblings, pain with our friends, pain in our romantic relationships. We live our lives connected to pain. We live in internal pain. Lives gripped with fear or worry, with anger, loneliness, grief and lost lives uh, that are confused, that are just have lost their way, lost their bearings on life. We just, we live in a world where our lives are connected to pain. And in the midst of it all, what we want and what we hope for is that God is going to step into that and deal with our pain. In fact, that seems to be what the Bible says God's going to do in Colossians chapter 1. It says, for God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in Jesus and through Jesus to reconcile to himself, God, all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, making peace through Jesus' blood shed on the cross. The end result of Easter was supposed to be that Jesus was reconciling the world and life back to God, making restoring life in our world to the way God always wanted it to be, creating a world that was filled with healing instead of brokenness, a world that was filled with joy instead of sorrow, a world that was filled with hope instead of despair, a world that was filled with gladness instead of pain. And yet here we are. And we, we grapple with this experience of pain that we either have or share with those that we love. And in the midst of it, people begin to doubt that God loves them. That's what people say, right? If God was loving and all-powerful, how could there be so much suffering in the world? It makes no sense. And so in the midst of our pain, we either blame God and get angry at him and lash out at him for causing this hurt in our lives, or we 
um, feel like God grows distant and aloof, like our prayers are bouncing up the ceiling, that our cries for help are going unheard. We cry out with Jesus on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And God doesn't answer like he didn't with Jesus and just left him to die on the cross. There are some who reach a breaking point and who conclude that given what's going on in life, God must not be there. Or if he is there, he's incapable of helping. Or if he's there and capable of helping, he just doesn't care. And they fall away from faith altogether. Because they believe God does not love them because of their pain. The truth is that what we want from God in the midst of our hurting, in the midst of watching loved ones hurting, what we want from God is we want God to step in and we want him to make it all right. Because that's what Jesus promised that he would do. In Matthew chapter 4, describing the early days of Jesus' ministry, it says, Jesus went through Galilee teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. The good news of the kingdom is that God's powerful love is breaking into the brokenness and messed upness of our world and and making all things right again. And Jesus wasn't just going around saying that that's what God was doing. He went around doing it. It says he was preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria. Oh, that that would happen again. And people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon possessed, those having seizures and the paralyzed, and he healed them. And large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. People, the reason people flocked to Jesus was because through Jesus, God's powerful love was breaking into the world and healing people's pain. And Jesus says, that's what I've come to do. <laughs> I remember this, this one story in the Bible where John the Baptist, who's Jesus' cousin, is unjustly languishing in a prison cell. And in this prison cell, he begins to doubt that Jesus really is the one sent from God to bring rescue to Israel. Because if Jesus came to turn over the oppression, to bring justice in the midst of the oppression that Israel was experiencing, why was John still in prison? And he begins to question whether Jesus is the Messiah. So he sends Jesus a message and he says, listen, are you really the one or should we look for someone else? It's like he's on the phone with the IT tech support. You know, Is there someone else I can talk to? A manager maybe? Who can solve my issue? Um, And Jesus sends this message back to John and he says, take a look around. The blind see and the deaf hear and the lame walk and those whose inner worlds are, are oppressed by the chaos and darkness of evil. They're being set free. Like what, what do you think is going on? And our response is to say, well, then exactly, Jesus, do that for us. Show us you love us by healing us in the midst of our pain. And and honestly, friends, sometimes that's exactly what God does. Despite the nail video, sometimes what we really need in the midst of our pain is for someone to pull the nail out. 
And that's sometimes exactly what God does. In James chapter 5, it says, Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. James is Jesus' brother, and he says, Listen, in the context of loving, vulnerable community where you're being real and open and honest with each other about the stuff that's going on in your life, in the context of that community, pray for each other. Pray the prayer of those who are devoted to Jesus and you will be healed. You'll experience healing in the community because the prayer of those who are fully devoted to following Jesus is a powerful thing that literally, the language is, that energizes much, that unleashes God's energy in the world and that energy, that powerful love breaking into the brokenness and messed upness of our world, that brings healing. I think that Jesus wants us to tell 10 times, 100 times the stories of healing in our community that we're currently telling. And we're not telling none on Easter Sunday, a couple Sundays ago. I wandered through the halls at Glenridge and bumped into Stacy and Jay. And here she is, you know, being given this horrible prognosis because of this incredibly rare form of cancer that she's been diagnosed with. And here she is on Easter Sunday, still worshiping with our community. God has got his hand on her. And I think it's because we're praying. James says earlier in his book, part of the reason why you don't have what you want is because you're not asking. It's not the only reason, but it's part of the reason because too many people in our community are like me and we give up too easily. Instead of just throwing ourselves on our faces before God and begging with God to set us free from the pain. Remember the end of the prayer revolution? Lord, lead us not into difficult times. Don't lead us into difficult circumstances. But when we're there, deliver us from the power of the evil one. Rescue us, set us free. God, you know, set us free from this pain that we're living with, this brokenness, this messed upness. Set us free. Maybe... If more of us prayed more with that energizing prayer, God would be doing more of that in our midst. Because sometimes the way God loves us is to pull the nail out of our head to set us free from the pain. But sometimes the way God loves us is to not do that. Sometimes the way God loves us is by not trying to fix it. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, the apostle Paul writes this, therefore, he says, in order to keep me from becoming conceited because of some stuff that had happened to him, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to torture me, to, to keep me in pain. And three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul has this issue of pain for the whole second half of his life. We don't know what it is, what this thorn in his flesh was. This pain that he lived with persistently for the last decades of his life. And he pleads with God, this prayer of James, he throws himself on his face. He says, God, take this away from me. And God says to him, no. The God who is love, the God who is infinite love, the God who only knows how to love, looked at Paul and said, 
No. My love for you is going to be manifested in the way I walk with you through this pain. It's going to be manifested in the way that I empower you in the midst of this pain, in the way that I'm present to you through the pain. And I, and I take this situation and I do something beautiful in your life because of the pain. In fact, he says, I'm going to, I'm going to do things in your life for the sake of the kingdom that would be impossible if I were to heal you from the pain. God says in love, I'm going to allow you to live with this pain because in this pain, you're drawn closer to me. You are more dependent on me. You uh, depend, you are more intimate with me. You live more like me. You reach people for me. You draw others to me all because I won't heal you from this pain. Now, that's not to say, I just want to be really clear about this, that God inflicted this pain on Paul. He did not. Read what Paul says. It was a messenger of Satan that tormented him. When, when the Lord's Prayer says, deliver us from the evil one, it is the evil one who creates the pain in our life. That's where pain comes from. Pain comes from evil. What God does is he takes the pain and he makes something beautiful out of it. God doesn't cause the pain. God doesn't minimize the pain or trivialize the pain. God's heart breaks that you are in pain. And yet, there are times when the more loving thing to do is to be with you in the midst of the pain rather than taking the pain away. And our responsibility in those moments of pain is to learn to accept God's love as it is expressed in our lives, such as they are in the midst of the pain. Paul goes on to say, therefore, since that's true, since God's not going to heal me of this, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That's why for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecution, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul says, if that's true, that God's going to meet me in the midst of the pain and empower me through the pain and draw me close to him and use me and all this stuff is going to be real because he has not healed my pain, then I'm going to delight. He's, I'm going to gladly boast. If I'm going to brag about anything that's going on in my life, it's not going to be all the things that are going well. I'm going to brag about the things that hurt. So I'm going to delight in the difficulties that I find myself in. Now, delight does not mean enjoy. Literally, the word means I am going to see the good in it and be satisfied with my life such as it is because of what God is doing through it. I'm going to see the good in it and embrace it and be content with it. That's what we've been invited into. Now that is not to say, and again, I want to be really clear about this. That is not to say that you should do nothing about the fact that you're being abused. 
That you should do nothing about the fact that so-and-so is taking advantage of you. That you should do nothing about your addiction or the addiction of your loved one. Nonsense. Nonsense. Do anything that you can do to rid your life of the pain. Go to counseling and deal with the turmoil that's going on inside to rid your life of the pain. Throw yourself on your face before God and plead with him to lead you not into difficult circumstances and to deliver you from the pain that's being caused by the evil one. Do everything you can to plead with God to remove the pain from your life absolutely but for the moment when God decides not to or not to yet your job is to embrace your life such as it is as God's the a manifestation the pain is not a manifestation of God's love to accept the beautiful thing that God is doing in your life as God's love for you. And it's not fun. And it's difficult. No discipline is pleasant at the time, but painful. But those who will be trained by it will reap a harvest of righteousness and peace, will become fully God's people. I remember years ago hearing somebody pray over a person who's in difficult circumstance. They said, God, please do not release this person from this pain until you're finished doing the work that you're doing through this pain. That's what Paul says. I accept my circumstances as the will of God, of the God who only knows how to love with an infinite love. I accept my life such as it is, as God working through me, working in me and working on me because he loves me until he rescues me from it. If not in this life, then in the day that is coming. The same Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. Paul says, I don't consider the suffering that I live with now to be very significant in comparison with the glory of the eternity that I'm going to spend one day with Christ. Now, for many of us, most of the time, that is a downright offensive thing for somebody to say. Oh, don't worry about your dad and his severely disabling stroke. He is going to be in heaven someday. That is an insulting thing to say. Because it can trivialize and minimize the reality of our pain. I think I've said before, I'm trying to come to terms with the fact that all of my parenting instincts I got from my dad who was raising boys. And when we got hurt, it was always, you know, shake it off. You're fine. Get back in the game. And what I'm realizing is that I'm raising only girls and I don't, I don't want to respond to their pain that way. I want to... I want to respond tenderly and with my heart. I want them to realize that I recognize their pain or else they're just going to stop telling me about it. I don't want to be the shake it off person with my girls. But that's how we treat each other so often. When somebody's going through, we give these trite Christian cliches, the worst of which is, well, you know, God will resolve it all one day in heaven. And that's not what Paul means. He does not mean to trivialize or minimize the pain that we live through. What he does mean to do is to perspectivize it. That is now officially a word. 
Go and use it. He wants to perspectivize it. Paul is being the physiotherapist who in the midst of the rehab workout is saying to the patient, push through the pain, push through the pain and just imagine how awesome it's gonna be one day to um, play hockey with the guys again. Push through the pain and imagine how amazing it's gonna be to go back to work again. Push through the pain and imagine how awesome it'll be to be able to walk your daughter down the aisle someday. The The pain that you experience in this present moment for a brief time pales in comparison to the significance and the amazing uh, glory of the goal to which we are pressing onward. Paul says, when you consider what is coming, what we put up with for this short period called our lifetime is certainly not very significant (laughs) because the day is coming when Jesus is going to return to this earth and when he does he's going to finish the work that he began in his lifetime the work that he has continued by the spirit in and through the church for 2,000 years of having the powerful love of God break into the brokenness and messiness of our world and bring healing to all of creation that's what Jesus does when he returns and when he does it looks the way John describes In Revelation 21, when he says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The word means renewed heaven and renewed earth. For the first heaven and the first earth, reality such as it is today had passed away and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, which is the church, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God and he will wipe every tear from their eyes and there'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away and he, God, who was seated on the throne, sovereign over history, said, I am making everything new. And the day is coming when Jesus will return and God will make everything new. And in that day, John says, there'll be no more sea. Not that God is anything against the ocean, but in the biblical vision, the sea is symbolic of the powers of chaos and darkness and destruction and death that threaten to undermine what God is doing in the world. In that day, John says, there'll be no more avalanches, no more mudslides, no more cancer cells, no more heart attacks, no more airplanes crashing into the Indian Ocean. There'll be no more chaos and destruction. In that day, he says, there'll be no more death or tears or mourning. No more 9-11s, no more Boston bombings, no more stabbings at house parties, no more burying your baby or burying your sibling or burying your parent or burying your grandparent. There'll be no more death, no more grieving, no more loss. In that day, there'll be no more sin. There'll be no more being hurt by other people's unloving, destructive choices by other people's abuse and abandonment and being taken advantage of and addiction. There'll be no more hurting other people with your destructive, unloving choices. We will learn to love completely and wholly. In those days, John says, there'll be no more curse. There'll be no trace of anything that seeks to undermine the goodness of God flooding into the world because in those days, John says, I'll tell you what there will be. There will be life 
He says there is a river of life that flows from the throne of God and fills all of creation, an overflowing of more and better life than you could have ever hoped from the one who has the power to do over and above abundantly more than anything you could have ever asked or imagined. He will fill this world with life and joy and beauty and hope and love. And there will be glory, he says. Just means, the word glory just means the heaviness or significance of God being revealed for who he is. The whole world will be filled with the beauty of who God really is. All of creation will be filled with whatever it is that makes God, God. The goodness of his glory will be unleashed and will flood the world because creation will be filled with God. He will live on earth with his bride to together forever at a never-ending wedding reception and we will see his face and we will know him and love him with the intimacy and passion with which we are known and loved by him John says the day is coming Paul says the day is coming and what we experience now pales in comparison to what we will be given in that day because of the love of God for you, even in the midst of your pain. Friends, I know that there are people in our community within the sound of my voice who've been living through a long, cold, dark, awful winter in your life. You have been in a polar vortex of emotion and pain and fear and anxiety and terror in your life. But let me tell you, because of Jesus, the love of God is breaking in to the darkness and brokenness and messiness of your world like the first buds of spring, like the first days of sunshine, like the first time you can go outside without your coat on. And all of it, All of it is a reminder that summer is coming. That one day before too long, we will bask in the warm glow of the undiluted power of the sun. And in those days, we will experience in full what we get to glimpse now in part. Just the unvarnished, infinite eternal love that God has for you. Even in the midst of your pain. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for what the scriptures say that you never leave us or forsake us. That even when you feel a a thousand miles away, not for a moment, Have you forsaken us? May we become people, God, who experienced your love for us even in the midst of our pain, even in the midst of our ignorance, even in the midst of our guilt, even in the midst of our shame. May we experience the fullness of your love for us that we too may become those who radiate your love into the world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
<laughs> See, it's, it's funny because it's true. <laughs> that video right there, I'm just going to tell you, that video right there is almost every conversation that Krista and I have had about a challenge that she's facing in 10 years of marriage. That's just, that's just real. Now, I, I need to tell you, I need to tell you, there is a companion video to that one that is ready to go viral. The only problem is it hasn't been written yet and it hasn't been filmed yet because I would love to, I keep saying this, I would love to see that exact same scenario shot um, from the other perspective, from the perspective of the person who genuinely just wants to be heard in the midst of a, a moment of pain like that, um, just to demonstrate how ridiculous people like me are who are trying to fix the problems all the time. So if you are a female screenwriter or videographer or whatever, you write it out and film it because I promise you that video goes as viral as this one has been. But but it's, it's amazing. The, the thing that I think about when I watch this video is how it raises the question of what it is that you need in your moment of deepest pain from the, from the people who are around you, from, from those that you invite into your journey. What is it that you want in the midst of your pain? And maybe better ask, how is it that you feel loved by the people around you when you are going through difficult circumstances? What does that love look like to you? How do you receive love in the midst of your pain? And to me, the reason that question's relevant for our conversation this morning is because that does not just apply to the relationships that we're in maritally or in friendship or the people around us and so on. That question of how you feel love in the midst of your pain, that's relevant to our relationship with God as well. And that's what this whole month has been about. We've rooted this entire Only God series in this biblical concept that like the Bible says that we love because he first loved us. Which is to say that if we're gonna be the people of love that Jesus has called us to be, people who love God with all that we are and all that we have, people who are loving ourselves and people who are loving each other and loving our community and loving our society, the, the Niagara region, people who are loving our world and even creation itself. We're to be the people whose lives are radiating love, which is what Jesus has called us to do and to be. Then that is, we're gonna become that to the degree that we have a prior experience of being loved by God. We will love to the degree that we receive the love with which he's first loved us. And so for this whole series, we've been looking at the things, the ways that our experience of God's love has been interrupted. And sometimes we fail to experience God's love because of shame issues in our lives. Because when we look in the mirror, what we see is something ugly and unlovable. And we assume that other people and God look at us the same way that we see ourselves. And Jeff Martin's confronted this a month ago and said, no, when God looks at you, he sees his child. He sees himself reflected in you and he adores you. He, he sees in you a work of art, a masterpiece that he's making into something beautiful and he's so proud of. He sees in you a, a prized possession that he literally gave everything he had in order to, to have just to himself. I think sometimes we fail to experience or to sense God's love for us because of guilt issues in our lives because we're just so aware of how messed up we are and how much we've messed up everything else and how messed up our life is. And we just assume that God is fed up with how messed up we are. 
And we talked about the book of Hosea and about how God looks at us with the eyes of a groom looking at his bride when the church doors open and he's coming down the aisle and she's coming down the aisle even though we as God's bride have been unfaithful. We've cheated on God. We've lacked commitment. We've had our eyes diverted by other stuff. We've cared about other stuff more than God. We've passionately pursued stuff more passionately than we pursue God. And the whole time, no matter who we are, what we've done, or how far we've strayed, or how many times God has had to call us back, he continues to love us. He loves us enough to let us go. And then he loves us enough to win us back. And then after Easter, which is all about love, Jeff talked about how sometimes we fail to sense or appreciate God's love for us because we just don't understand how much God has invested in us, how God has literally poured himself into us to make of us the people that we were created to be in our character and then to invite us into doing what we've been created to do in working alongside of him in order to be a part of his kingdom that is coming. And now as we turn to in this last week of this Only God series, I believe that sometimes we fail to experience God's love because of the pain that we find ourselves in in our lives or because of the pain that the people that we love and are connected to find themselves in. That it's our experience of pain that interrupts our ability to experience God's love. And there's no question that we live our lives connected to pain. Um, Our creation is a creation that groans in pain every uh, avalanche and every mudslide and every earthquake and every cancer cell and every heart attack and every chemical imbalance reminds us that our creation is a creation that is groaning in pain. We live in a world of pain. I talked to a friend uh, just last week who lives in the Ukraine who told me months ago that the minute the Sochi Olympics were over, Putin was going to invade Ukraine and now lives with some fear about for the future of his country. He just, he's living in pain for his people. Every news story about slavery or sex trafficking or stupid poverty or every time the news fails to cover those things, every time the news covers the chaos of war, we're just reminded that our world is a world that's in pain. We experience communal pain. And in the Niagara region, uh, one only has to remember back to those days when Kristen French disappeared to feel all over again the fear and the pain of what we all lived through together I was in a conversation last week with somebody who was remembering a, the splitting of a church that they were involved in years ago and just broke down and wept over the pain that they lived through communally with the people around them. We live in relational pain with our parents or pain with our kids or pain with our spouses, pain with our siblings, pain with our friends, pain in our romantic relationships. We live our lives connected to pain. We live in internal pain. Lives gripped with fear or worry, with anger, loneliness, grief, and lost lives uh, that are confused, that are just have lost their way, lost their bearings on life. We just, we live in a world where our lives are connected to 
pain. And in the midst of it all, what we want and what we hope for is that God is going to step into that and deal with our pain. In fact, that seems to be what the Bible says God's going to do in Colossians chapter 1. It says, for God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in Jesus and through Jesus to reconcile to himself, God, all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, making peace through Jesus' blood shed on the cross. The end result of Easter was supposed to be that Jesus was reconciling the world and life back to God, making restoring life in our world to the way God always wanted it to be, creating a world that was filled with healing instead of brokenness, a world that was filled with joy instead of sorrow, a world that was filled with hope instead of despair, a world that was filled with gladness instead of pain. And yet here we are. And we, we grapple with this experience of pain that we either have or share with those that we love. And in the midst of it, people begin to doubt that God loves them. That's what people say, right? If God was loving and all-powerful, how could there be so much suffering in the world? It makes no sense. And so in the midst of our pain, we either blame God and get angry at him and lash out at him for causing this hurt in our lives, or we um, feel like God grows distant and aloof, like our prayers are bouncing up the ceiling, that our cries for help are going unheard. We cry out with Jesus on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And God doesn't answer like he didn't with Jesus and just left him to die on the cross. There are some who reach a breaking point and who conclude that given what's going on in life, God must not be there. Or if he is there, he's incapable of helping. Or if he's there and capable of helping, he just doesn't care. And they fall away from faith altogether. Because they believe God does not love them because of their pain. The truth is that what we want from God in the midst of our hurting, in the midst of watching loved ones hurting, what we want from God is we want God to step in and we want him to make it all right. Because that's what Jesus promised that he would do. In Matthew chapter 4, describing the early days of Jesus' ministry. It says, Jesus went through Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. The good news of the kingdom is that God's powerful love is breaking into the brokenness and messed upness of our world and, and making all things right again. And Jesus wasn't just going around saying that that's what God was doing. He went around doing it. It says he was preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria. Oh, that that would happen again. And people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon possessed, those having seizures and the paralyzed, and he healed them. And large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. People, the reason people flocked to Jesus was because through Jesus, God's powerful love was breaking into the world and healing people's pain. And Jesus says, that's what I've come to do. <laughs> I remember this, this one story in the Bible where John the Baptist, who's Jesus' cousin, is unjustly languishing in a prison cell. And in this prison cell, he begins to doubt 
that Jesus really is the one sent from God to bring rescue to Israel. Because if Jesus came to turn over the oppression, to bring justice in the midst of the oppression that Israel was experiencing, why was John still in prison? And he begins to question whether Jesus is the Messiah. So he sends Jesus a message and he says, listen, are you really the one or should we look for someone else? It's like he's on the phone with the IT tech support. You know, Is there someone else I can talk to, a manager maybe, who can solve my issue? Um, and Jesus sends this message back to John and he says, take a look around. The blind see and the deaf hear and the lame walk and those whose inner worlds are, are oppressed by the chaos and darkness of evil, they're being set free. Like what, what do you think is going on? And our response is to say, well then exactly Jesus, do that for us. Show us you love us by healing us in the midst of our pain. And, and honestly, friends, sometimes that's exactly what God does. Despite the nail video, sometimes what we really need in the midst of our pain is there's someone to pull the nail out. And that's sometimes exactly what God does. In James chapter five, it says, therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. James is Jesus' brother and he says, listen, in the context of loving vulnerable community where you're being real and open and honest with each other about the stuff that's going on in your life, in the context of that community, pray for each other, pray the prayer of those who are devoted to Jesus and you will be healed. You'll experience healing in the community because the prayer of those who are fully devoted to following Jesus is a powerful thing that literally the language is that energizes much, that unleashes God's energy in the world and that energy, that powerful love breaking into the brokenness and messed upness of our world, that brings healing. I think that Jesus wants us to tell 10 times, 100 times the stories of healing in our community that we're currently telling. And we're not telling none. On Easter Sunday, a couple Sundays ago, I wandered through the halls at Glenridge and bumped into Stacy and Jay. And here she is, you know, being given this horrible prognosis because of this incredibly rare form of cancer that she's been diagnosed with. And here she is on Easter Sunday, still worshiping with our community. God has got his hand on her. And I think it's because we're praying. James says earlier in his book, part of the reason why you don't have what you want is because you're not asking. It's not the only reason, but it's part of the reason because too many people in our community are like me and we give up too easily. Instead of just throwing ourselves on our faces before God and begging with God to set us free from the pain. Remember the end of the prayer revolution? Lord, lead us not into difficult times. Don't lead us into difficult circumstances. But when we're there, deliver us from the power of the evil one. Rescue us, set us free. God, you know, set us free from this pain that we're living with, this brokenness, this messed upness. Set us free. Maybe if more of us prayed more, with that energizing prayer, God would be doing more of that in our midst because sometimes the way God loves us is to pull the nail out of our head to set us free from the pain. But sometimes the way God loves us is to not do that. Sometimes the way God loves us is by not trying to fix it. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, the apostle Paul writes this. Therefore, he says, 
in order to keep me from becoming conceited because of some stuff that had happened to him, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to torture me, to, to keep me in pain. And three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul has this issue of pain for the whole second half of his life. We don't know what it is, what this thorn in his flesh was, this pain that he lived with persistently for the last decades of his life. And he pleads with God, this prayer of James, he throws himself on his face. He says, God, take this away from me. And God says to him, no. The God who is love, the God who is infinite love, the God who only knows how to love, looked at Paul and said, no, my love for you is going to be manifested in the way I walk with you through this pain. It's gonna be manifested in the way that I empower you in the midst of this pain, in the way that I'm present to you through the pain. And I, and I take this situation and I do something beautiful in your life because of the pain. In fact, he says, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do things in your life for the sake of the kingdom that would be impossible if I were to heal you from the pain. God says in love, I'm gonna allow you to live with this pain because in this pain, you're drawn closer to me. You are more dependent on me. You, uh, depend, you are more intimate with me you live more like me you reach people for me you draw others to me all because i won't heal you from this pain now that's not to say i just want to be really clear about this that god inflicted this pain on paul he did not Read what Paul says. It was a messenger of Satan that tormented him. When, when the Lord's prayer says, deliver us from the evil one, it is the evil one who creates the pain in our life. That's where pain comes from. Pain comes from evil. What God does is he takes the pain and he makes something beautiful out of it. God doesn't cause the pain. God doesn't minimize the pain or trivialize the pain. God's heart breaks that you are in pain. And yet, there are times when the more loving thing to do is to be with you in the midst of the pain rather than taking the pain away. And our responsibility in those moments of pain is to learn to accept God's love as it is expressed in our lives such as they are in the midst of the pain. Paul goes on to say, therefore, since that's true, since God's not gonna heal me of this, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That's why for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecution, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul says, if that's true, that God's gonna meet me in the midst of the pain and empower me through the pain and draw me close to him and use me and all this stuff is gonna be real because he has not healed my pain, then I'm gonna delight. He's, I'm gonna gladly boast. If I'm gonna brag about anything that's going on in my life, it's not gonna be all the things that are going well. I'm gonna brag about the things that hurt. So I'm gonna delight in the difficulties that I find myself in. Now, delight does not mean enjoy. Literally, the word means I am going to see the good in it 
and be satisfied with my life such as it is because of what God is doing through it. I'm going to see the good in it and embrace it and be content with it. That's what we've been invited into. Now that is not to say, and again, I want to be really clear about this. That is not to say that you should do nothing about the fact that you're being abused. That you should do nothing about the fact that so-and-so is taking advantage of you. That you should do nothing about your addiction or the addiction of your loved one. Nonsense. Nonsense. Do anything that you can do to rid your life of the pain. Go to counseling and deal with the turmoil that's going on inside to rid your life of the pain. Throw yourself on your face before God and plead with him to lead you not into difficult circumstances and to deliver you from the pain that's being caused by the evil one. Do everything you can to plead with God to remove the pain from your life. Absolutely, but for the moment when God decides not to or not to yet, your job is to embrace your life such as it is, as God's the, a manifestation. The pain is not a manifestation of God's love. To accept the beautiful thing that God is doing in your life as God's love for you and it's not fun and it's difficult no discipline is pleasant at the time but painful but those who will be trained by it will reap a harvest of righteousness and peace will become fully God's people I remember years ago hearing somebody pray over a person who's in difficult circumstance they said God please do not release this person from this pain until you're finished doing the work that you're doing through this pain that's what Paul says I accept my circumstances as the will of God, of the God who only knows how to love with an infinite love. I accept my life such as it is, as God working through me, working in me and working on me because he loves me until he rescues me from it. If not in this life, then in the day that is coming. The same Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. Paul says, I don't consider the suffering that I live with now to be very significant in comparison with the glory of the eternity that I'm going to spend one day with Christ. Now, for many of us, most of the time, that is a downright offensive thing for somebody to say. Oh, don't worry about your dad and his severely disabling stroke. He's going to be in heaven someday. That is an insulting thing to say. Because it can trivialize and minimize the reality of our pain. I think I've said before, I'm trying to come to terms with the fact that all of my parenting instincts I got from my dad who was raising boys. And when we got hurt, it was always, you know, shake it off. You're fine. Get back in the game. And what I'm realizing is that I'm raising only girls and I don't, I don't want to respond to their pain that way. I want to... I want to respond tenderly and with my heart. I want them to realize that I recognize their pain or else they're just going to stop telling me about it. I don't want to be the shake it off person with my girls. But that's how we treat each other so often. When somebody's going through, we give these trite Christian cliches, the worst of which is, well, you know, God will resolve it all one day in heaven. And that's not what Paul means. He does not mean to trivialize or minimize the pain that we live through. What he does mean to do is to perspectivize it. That is now officially a word. 
Go and use it. He wants to perspectivize it. Paul is being the physiotherapist who in the midst of the rehab workout is saying to the patient, push through the pain, push through the pain and just imagine how awesome it's gonna be one day to um, play hockey with the guys again. Push through the pain and imagine how amazing it's gonna be to go back to work again. Push through the pain and imagine how awesome it'll be to be able to walk your daughter down the aisle someday. The the pain that you experience in this present moment for a brief time pales in comparison to the significance and the amazing uh, glory of the goal to which we are pressing onward. Paul says, when you consider what is coming, what we put up with for this short period called our lifetime is certainly not very significant <laughs> because the day is coming when Jesus is going to return to this earth and when he does he's going to finish the work that he began in his lifetime the work that he has continued by the spirit in and through the church for 2,000 years of having the powerful love of God break into the brokenness and messiness of our world and bring healing to all of creation that's what Jesus does when he returns and when he does it looks the way John describes it in Revelation 21 when he says then I saw saw a new heaven and a new earth the word means renewed heaven and renewed earth for the first heaven and the first earth reality such as it is today had passed away and there was no longer any sea and I saw the holy city the new Jerusalem which is the church coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying look God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God and he will wipe every tear from their eyes and there'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away and he God who is seated on the throne sovereign over history said I am making everything new and the day is coming when Jesus will return and God will make everything new and in that day John says there'll be no more sea not that God has anything against the ocean but in the biblical vision the sea is symbolic of the powers of chaos and darkness and destruction and death that threaten to undermine what God is doing in the world in that day John says there'll be no more avalanches no more mudslides no more cancer cells no more heart attacks no more airplanes crashing into the Indian Ocean there'll be no more chaos and destruction in that day he says there'll be no more death or tears or mourning no more 9-11s no more Boston bombing no more stabbings at house parties no more burying your baby or burying your sibling or burying your parent or burying your grandparent there'll be no more death no more grieving no more loss in that day there'll be no more sin there'll be no more being hurt by other people's unloving destructive choices by other people's abuse and abandonment and being taken advantage of and addiction. There'll be no more hurting other people with your destructive, unloving choices. We will learn to love completely and wholly. In those days, John says, there'll be no more curse. There'll be no trace of anything that seeks to undermine the goodness of God flooding into the world because in those days, John says, I'll tell you what there will be. There will be life. 
He says there is a river of life that flows from the throne of God and fills all of creation, an overflowing of more and better life than you could have ever hoped from the one who has the power to do over and above abundantly more than anything you could have ever asked or imagined. He will fill this world with life and joy and beauty and hope and love. And there will be glory, he says. Just means, the word glory just means the heaviness or significance of God being revealed for who he is. The whole world will be filled with the beauty of who God really is. All of creation will be filled with whatever it is that makes God, God. The goodness of his glory will be unleashed and will flood the world because creation will be filled with God. He will live on earth with his bride together forever at a never-ending wedding reception and we will see his face and we will know him and love him with the intimacy and passion with which we are known and loved by him. John says the day is coming. Paul says the day is coming and what we experience now pales in comparison to what we will be given in that day because of the love of God for you even in the midst of your pain. Friends, I know that there are people in our community within the sound of my voice who've been living through a long, cold, dark, awful winter in your life. You have been in a polar vortex of emotion and pain and fear and anxiety and terror in your life. But let me tell you, because of Jesus, the love of God is breaking in the darkness and brokenness and messiness of your world like the first buds of spring, like the first days of sunshine, like the first time you can go outside without your coat on. And all of it, all of it is a reminder that summer is coming, that one day before too long, we will bask in the warm glow of the undiluted power of the sun. And in those days, we will experience in full what we get to glimpse now in part. Just the unvarnished, infinite, eternal love that God has for you. Even in the midst of your pain. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for what the scriptures say, that you never leave us or forsake us. That even when you feel a a thousand miles away, not for a moment have you forsaken us. May we become people, God, who experienced your love for us, even in the midst of our pain, even in the midst of our ignorance, even in the midst of our guilt, even in the midst of our shame, may we experience the fullness of your love for us that we too may become those who radiate your love into the world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.